president, of course, has critical governing duties. But there's another set of duties that presidents typically fulfill, the ceremonial ones. That's black tie dinners and events, first pitches at baseball games, hosting champion sports teams at the White House, and many, many more. President Trump has taken an unusual approach to these traditions. Most recently, amid controversy, the president and first lady backed out of the Kennedy Center honors. Long attended by presidential couples, this year the White House cited the desire to avoid political distraction. And the NBA championship winners, the Golden State Warriors, have yet to make a decision about whether the team will visit the White House, as the winners usually do. This is seemingly part of a pattern. The president hasn't participated in many traditional ceremonial duties, which naturally brings us to this week's question. Can a president fail to participate in the ceremonial aspects of the presidency? And if he does, what is lost? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. On this episode, we'll learn how President Ronald Reagan handled similar events, and we'll talk to a former White House social secretary whose job it was to plan many of these ceremonial moments. But first, we have the Post's legendary chief political correspondent, Dan Balls here. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. So let's start by addressing some of the things that President Trump has missed or decided not to participate in in some way that other presidents traditionally have. Most recently, we've seen that the White House decided that the president and the first lady were not going to attend the Kennedy Center Honors. First, what exactly are the Kennedy Center Honors and why is it notable that the president wouldn't be there? Well, these are, this is an annual event that the Kennedy Center honors people in the arts and culture. It's a prestigious evening, um, usually taped and put on television later. And presidents always attend. You know, it lends an aura to it. It gives a, a greater sense of this is a, a national honor. You know, it's one of these things that we take for granted that the president and first lady will be in the box overlooking the, the stage and participating in this. And so the idea that President Trump and first lady Melania Trump decided that this was not something they thought they should do because of the potential for protest or disruption is really, I think, to a lot of people, a disappointment and, a, and an indication of the degree to which this is a divided country and that President Trump has divided the country in office. Yeah, and this seems to be a pattern, right? So there have been several other ceremonial things that the president or the president and the first lady haven't done. So something called the alfalfa dinner, which is this elite dinner for Washington insiders. They didn't attend that at the beginning of their presidency. And other things like throwing the first pitch at the Nationals game. Like you said, they kind of do this to avoid the threat of protest. Is that a good reason? Would rising above this by having this presidential role at these moments be effective? I think it's a hard call for this president. I mean, there are a couple of other things he didn't do. He did not do the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And he did not do the, the gridiron dinner, which is another press event. Not the first time that a president has skipped those, but, but notable that, that he attended neither one of those. In some ways, you can fully understand why he's not. You know, he goes into certain audiences and there are just a lot of people who opposed him as a candidate and opposed him as president. And they can tend to be vocal about that. So that's one reason. You know, I think that the other is that he's not comfortable in those settings. He's not comfortable in what one would call a unifying role. It's quite extraordinary that we have a president who is unable to do that, who, who the country doesn't necessarily look to at moments like that. I think 
he's gotten to a point in his presidency where he is most comfortable and perhaps only able to speak to audiences that are basically his base. We saw it at the rally in in Phoenix this week. He feels he can say and do whatever he wants, and he often does. He goes off script. uh, He gets things off his chest. That's not the role we think of for the president of the United States, particularly in, in a variety of these other settings where they have to be speaking on behalf of the entire nation. So this raises an interesting point, which is that Trump is a man who likes praise. It seems in part that he ran for president for the glamour of it, for the opportunity to be held in esteem. So one would think he would want to attend these events. One would think that these were going to be the crown jewel of his moments in the presidency. Why are are we not seeing that from him? Well, because he's been a divisive figure. I mean, I think you're right. I think things we know about Donald Trump are that he does like adulation and esteem and respect and, and hates it when he doesn't get it and feels aggrieved when he doesn't get it. And I think that we've seen all of that both as a candidate and particularly as a president in the way he does or does not deal with, in a sense, what you would call the ceremonial aspects of being president. I mean, these are pretty simple, straightforward things. Things like the Kennedy Center Honors, basically putting on a tux and showing up. Um, other, Other moments when the country is in crisis require a president to be able, in a sense, to rise above all of the divisions, and to speak for the country as a whole. I think almost any other president would have gone to the funeral for Heather Heyer, who was killed in Charlottesville, and he did not do that. So it's, it's left him with a much kind of narrower definition of what it means to be president of the United States, and the country's getting used to that. Uh, again, from his vantage point, why should he go to a place where he's going to get booed or heckled or, or not treated with respect? I think that he doesn't want to put himself or his family into those situations. But it is a, a more limited role for the president than we've seen in the past, no question about it. So what exactly have we seen in the past? One former president who fulfilled a great number of ceremonial duties, quite willingly, it seems, was Ronald Reagan. To find out more about this, we talked to John Highbush, the executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Here's John. My remembrance is that he just was overjoyed at these events. He loved to participate in them. I think they gave him an opportunity to show off his communication skills. And he, you know, he'd been an actor. So he loved being in touch with other people, and he just liked the moment. Uh, He was all about timing. Um, He had just a a huge uh, collection of jokes and one-liners that he loved to try out on audiences. He loved to tell stories. So those moments were were just built for his character and his personality. I just think he reveled in them. Do you know of any one-liners that you can recall? Well, you know, not one specifically, but, what, you know, what I'd say is evidence of this is when we were uh, modernizing the president's uh, museum here at the Reagan Library, I sent staff off to find um, artifacts and articles of things that the public maybe had never seen before. And by surprise, they came up with a brown cardboard box that wasn't labeled in and inside the box were um, note cards that the president had secretly kept over a period of about 40 years. And then on the note cards, he had meticulously written his most famous quotes and expressions that he had read from authors or political figures uh, over the years. And and included in those note cards were literally hundreds of uh, one-liners 
that he used to interject into stories. And and uh, those note cards ended up becoming famous. They uh, became a New York Times bestselling book called The Notes by Ronald Reagan. And so they were really material that he made sure he made good use of at all of these ceremonial events. So you've sort of touched on this, but did Reagan use the opportunity for these public ceremonies to really shape his perception among the public? Yeah, he really did. He didn't have the ability, like President Trump presently has, to reach 30, 40, 50, 100 million people uh, directly through a tweet. He had to rely on the staging of the moment, and the moments could only be seen through a far more limited lens, and that would be three television networks and a, a nascent cable channel and newspaper and print uh, and radio. But in order for him to get his vision adopted and get his message across, he used these events as a way to tell a story and as a way to get people's attention and to remember what he had said and what he meant by what he said. And they spent a lot of time on the White House, in the White House and amongst the staff orchestrating these events in order to do precisely that, to to create an effective message that would help the president's program get passed in Congress or garner the support of the American people. So is it fair to assume that these events carried more weight in the Reagan era than they do perhaps now? I would think that they did. Uh, You know, uh, and the president and Mrs. Reagan made a lot of use of them. There were over 57 state dinners at the White House, more than most every other president. And You know, he didn't just throw out one baseball at an opening day. He threw them out in 1984 and several times in 1986, 1988. Even after he was president, he threw one out in Japan. You know, a very famous uh, moment that was just startling. It was the first time a president had ever done it was the president uh, launched a, a NASCAR race from Air Force One. You know, gentlemen, start your engines. And it came from the president speaking high above the race course, and uh, and then the, the plane landed in full sight of the Daytona track, and the president got out, and then he uh, interviewed live during the race, and, uh, you know, I mean, you can just imagine, there was a lot of theater that went into these kinds of events, and, and they were produced just magnificently in order to grab people's attention and, and allow the president to, to get his points across. So it sounds like most of these moments went well for President Reagan. Are there notable examples of moments when President Reagan's attendance at an event was met by controversy of some sort? Um, you know, there were a few. So you think back to the 1980s, you know, oftentimes when the president would travel, like any president, he, he might be met with protest in one place or another. And, you know, there was a couple of issues, uh, whether it be the nuclear freeze uh, movement or the Contras in Nicaragua that always seemed to drive controversy. Um, One in particular that you could probably single out as being a moment in time when there was controversy over a staged event, you might remember, was when the president traveled to Germany and there was a cemetery in Bitburg, the German base. There were many thousands of German soldiers that were buried there. And then the president uh, was asked and agreed to speak and to visit uh, these grave sites. And it turned out that you know, a handful of something like 50 or 55 of the of the German soldiers buried there were had been members of the SS. So there was a controversy that erupted when the the president insisted on speaking there, regardless, and he did so. And the controversy passed over pretty quickly. But I remember that as a vivid example of one that went a little bit wrong. Yeah. So then, are these public appearances 
inherently important to the presidency? You know, I think that uh, President Reagan, if he were to respond to that question directly, would tell you, would say that much of life is really a, a story and it's, in, and it's about storytelling. And I think that he and his team were particularly good at uh, using major ceremonial events to tell a story. And uh, they are so important because there's so many people that might tune in and understand the important symbolism of what's occurring at that event. And, and so you have these windows of time in which you can capture the, uh, the public's attention and their imagination and uh, really have them tune in to what it is that you care about. And, and the president did that very often. And I think every president has understood that these moments should not be wasted. They, they, they're incredibly invaluable. Uh, the world's attention uh, is on them at the time, and it's just critical to execute them smartly to be effective. What actually goes into organizing these ceremonial and traditional events? How does the staff make sure that these moments are successful? Juliana Smoot worked as White House Social Secretary under President Obama, and she explains what goes into the job and the decision-making for events. Here's Juliana. So first of all, what does a social secretary do? Well, a social secretary for the White House is responsible for all events that happen in the White House, which the public is invited to, or events that the press could come to. You know, they do press conferences in the state dining room or in the East Room on occasion. The social secretary and the staff set that up. So it's anything that happens within the House or on the ground. So how do you decide what kind of ceremonial events the president will participate in? Who ultimately makes that decision? Well, his schedule, um, and I say his because we don't have a woman president yet. <laughs> um, I, you know, that, that, is, that is probably the most difficult job in the White House, I say in just a little bit, is the scheduling and figuring out things and events that he and the first lady should go to, should host. So we we would have a ton of events, and we'd have to work with the West Wing, the president's schedule, and get events on the books and scheduled. And a lot of times, I mean, you can look at the calendar and see, like, a a St. Patrick's Day event or, you know, the Easter egg roll. Those things are pretty much set for the Kennedy Center honors, for example. That date is generally set well in advance, and there's typically an event for the honorees at the White House prior to the show at the Kennedy Center. So what is it like in the lead up to these ceremonial events? Can you give us sort of an inside look at the day of the Easter egg roll, for example, or the the day in the lead up to the Kennedy Center honors pre-ceremony? What kinds of things are happening? Is the president involved in the preparations? What does that look like? Well, I mean, for the Kennedy Center honors, you want to make sure that the honorees feel like this is a really special time for them. And it is. I mean, it's it's in some cases the pinnacle of of a, a great career that so many of these folks have had. So you want to make sure that transportation, getting them to the White House and then getting them back to the Kennedy Center, you know, before the president's motorcade, getting that, you know, the transportation, that kind of stuff is something you have to take into account. So you have to um, think about all those little teeny details. So the actual event, by the time it gets there, you're like, okay, we're we're done. Um, And then you make sure that the menu is done. You work with the White House chef and her staff to make sure that if there's something in particular that one of the honorees wants that that's served or if there's a particular cocktail they like or a 
soda or something that we have that for them. All of that sounds like a lot of fun to somebody who has not been to a White House dinner of any kind. Uh, But what about for the image of the president himself? What about for the office of the presidency? Is there any significance to these kinds of events? Oh, well, definitely. Um, You know, I'm thinking, gosh, one of the first events I did after starting, well, it was the Easter egg roll. You know, we had, you know, ministers and priests from all over the country come in to have breakfast with the president and first lady. And that was just really moving. And, you know, some of those folks probably were not supportive of the president, but it it basically is the leader of our country saying to leaders in different parts of our society, hey, what you do is important too. And we want to honor you. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that, that some attendees don't always support the president. It seems like other presidents have been able to overcome that. President Trump has had a lot of people refuse to attend events at the White House. He's canceled events as a result of people threatening to boycott or disagreeing with his perspective and therefore not wanting to come. Does this strike you as unusual? Is, is this something to be alarmed about? I, you know what? I I understand people not going. But again, this is the White House, and it's not only the person that's sitting in the Oval Office. So, you know, I do understand that. We just had, you know, I think a lot of folks from the President's Commission on the Arts and Humanities just resigned last week, too. It does set a sort of, makes me a little bit nervous about, okay, what happens, what goes on. And this has, the White House still should be open to, to people. People should take advantage of going. If you are invited to a state dinner, do everything you can to, to go and do and be there. You know, these are just some traditions that are part of our history, and it would be a shame if these things go away. It, it's still a, a tradition in what, what, we, what we do and as Americans. So my last question for you is, what determines whether or not one of these events is a success? How do you guys look back and reflect on it and say, we did this right, or this accomplished the goals of the president or the goals of the people's house? What measures success? Well, I mean, <laughs> a lot of times if you the people who are supposed to get in, get in, that you don't have any glitches at the door. <laughs> so I think, you know, getting folks in there, making sure people feel comfortable when they're there. You'd be surprised at my first dinner that I did was for Mexico, for the president of Mexico, and Beyonce was the entertainment. And I ran into her and her husband in the diplomatic room before she was going to perform, and she was nervous. I was like, you're nervous? You're like the (laughs) biggest superstar in the world. And she's like, I know, but I'm nervous. I said, it's a small small audience by comparison to what you're used to. But it's funny, and that's, you want people to be relaxed and feel comfortable And also have a good time. That's the, I mean, that's what you would want if you had folks over to your house for dinner. So, Dan, I want to ask you a fundamental question here, which is you mentioned things like Heather Heyer's funeral, obviously very important for a president to attend, but these other things, right? Throwing out the first pitch, the White House Correspondence Center. Are these things important? Is it important for the American president to attend these galas, to participate in these less less significant, let's say, ceremonial moments? In the great scheme of things, probably not. Um, if, you know, if president doesn't throw out the first ball, Major League Baseball will survive and the right. fans will be very happy. I mean, as, as an aside, it's always a risk for a politician to go to a baseball stadium and throw out the first ball. I remember being in Boston the week of John Kerry's convention in 2004. 
It's his hometown. He's going to be nominated for president of the United States. He goes to Fenway Park and throws out the first ball. He gets booed. Baseball fans are unforgiving about <laughs> politicians trying to take advantage of the moment. So, so it, it, I say in the great scheme of things, no. You can do those or not do them. Some of them are elective, obviously. But if you don't do any of them, I think it draws attention to the fact that the country is divided around your presidency. And I think that's the point at which Donald Trump is now. If he can find a way to do some of these perhaps it will ease a little bit the tensions that exist around his presidency. Yeah, I just want to make sure to say that it's not as though the president has done no ceremonial things. He had a successful White House Easter egg roll. There were thousands of people that gathered on the lawn of the White House for an Easter celebration. Trump spoke to the Boy Scouts, as presidents traditionally have. That did require the Boy Scouts to issue an apology afterward. And President, the president also invited the New England Patriots to the White House after they won the Super Bowl, and several members of the team did not attend. So is it more harmful for Trump to partake in these kinds of events, even if they result in controversy, or should he opt out altogether if he's going to be faced with, with this kind of backlash? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, think of it in human terms. If you invite the world champions in football or baseball or basketball or, you know, NCAA champions to the White House and high-profile athletes make a point of saying, I'm not going to show up. If you're the president of the United States, you're probably saying, well, well, what's going on here? They're using it to make a political statement. Those are events that other presidents have done without particular political controversy, and, and in most cases, all teammates show up and nobody makes a big deal out of it. So if you're Donald Trump, you're probably saying, well, why are they... Why are they using this to make a point about me? And he probably then feels inclined to do fewer of those. On the other hand, you know, you mentioned the Boy Scouts. This was one where he went totally off script and turned what is supposed to be an absolutely non-political event into a kind of a political rally. And in, in an embarrassing way, as you said, the Boy Scouts were, were forced to apologize uh, because of the backlash that that created. So in some ways... Donald Trump is a victim of people saying, I'm going to make a point of kind of sticking it in his eye over a certain event that he's invited me to. On the other hand, he has not lived up to what a president is supposed to do at some of these ceremonial or nonpartisan events. We're now, as you've mentioned, at this moment in our political history where the country feels incredibly divided and the president can't even do so much as host the, the Super Bowl winning team <laughs> without a little bit of controversy. Are these things a result of sort of an inevitable climate that was going to exist for whomever occupied the office of the White House right now? Or are these things a result of circumstances that President Trump has actually created? It's a combination of both. At this point, you could argue that Donald Trump is the most polarizing president in our history. But before that, Barack Obama was the most polarizing president in our history. Right. And before that, George W. Bush was the most polarizing president Dan, in Dan, are we on a path to destruction? <laughs> well, I mean, a part of it is this is something that has been building over time. I mean, the divisions that we're living through right now didn't happen because of Donald Trump. They predated Donald Trump. On the other hand, the kind of campaign that Donald Trump ran and the kind of presidency that he's operating have made those things worse, and one could argue made them much worse partly because of his own particular style. And, and you've been covering politics for many, many years. 
Have you ever seen a president who fails to participate in all of these ceremonial moments? Not to this extent. I mean, all presidents chafe at some of these obligations. Barack Obama didn't really like to do all the press dinners either, and he had a better relationship with the press by far than Donald Trump has. And I think you have to, again, understand the you know, where presidents are coming from, they are asked to do a lot of things. We may think of them as easy to do or even perhaps occasionally fun to do, but for them, it's like they are always on, and every human being doesn't want to be on all the time. So I I get that, but Donald Trump takes everything to a different level. I mean, that's, that's the nature of this presidency. And so the degree to which we've seen some of this in the past It's just different with Donald Trump. He makes everything larger than life. So we're going to boil this down to our final question, which is our can he do that question. So can a president forego the traditional ceremonial roles of the presidency? And if he does, what, if anything, is lost? A president can define the presidency any way he or she wants to. So they can do what they prefer to do or not do what they they don't prefer to do. But it comes at a cost. It continues to narrow the audience that Donald Trump has to speak to and and to represent. And I think that that's the risk for him. He seems to be focusing more and more narrowly on those people who really love him and who are still with him, come whatever. But he's done nothing of any significance to reach out beyond that. And remarkably, what we're seeing is these attacks on members of the Republican Party, whether it's Mitch McConnell, John McCain, you name it. I mean, the fact that he's not just attacking the media and the Democrats, that he's attacking establishment Republicans is another reminder of the degree to which he continues to narrow his base. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys can follow Dan Balls on Twitter at... At Dan Balls. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please try and review us and share us with everybody you know. We appreciate it and we will keep bringing more episodes to you. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the hardworking, diligent, patient, and kind Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. like can he do that you should check out some of our other great podcasts like constitutional a series about how people have framed and reframed the constitution over time from host lillian cunningham or try cape up with jonathan capehart where jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid you can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at washingtonpost.com podcasts the washington 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 post, post.